Today on the Matt Wall Show, Kanye West has a psychotic episode on camera, and it's very sad to watch, actually. Also, an official at Buckingham Palace is forced to resign because she asked a black woman where she's from. It's the dumbest racism controversy all year, and that's really saying something. Plus, a new hit piece accuses Ron DeSantis of not being fun, to which I say, well, good. And a court case in France is a huge win for the world's most marginalized group, and by that I mean introverts. We'll talk about all that and more today on the Matt Walsh Show. But well, don't be distracted by parties and presents this holiday season. Instead, join Hallow's most anticipated prayer challenge of the year, Pray 25, led by cast members from The Chosen, the largest Christian streaming service in history, streaming series in history, I should say. Pray 25 will guide you through meditation and prayer for 25 days leading up to Christmas. Pray 25 will help grow your understanding of mankind to develop a disciplined prayer habit during a season when discipline is put to the test. Hallow is the number one Christian prayer app in the U.S. and the number one Catholic app in the world. Hallow helps me make prayer a priority, and with Pray 25, it can do the same for you. Find peace and fortify your faith this Christmas with Hallow. Download the app for free and join the Pray 25 challenge. Go to hallow.com slash Matt Walsh and get three months completely free. That's hallow.com slash Matt Walsh to reclaim your peace during this holiday season. Well, I have not spent uh, very much time talking about Kanye West on this show, and that's partly because I figure you're getting quite enough Kanye content from every other podcast in the world. It's also because a celebrity going around and saying outlandish things is not the kind of story that I find terribly interesting. I think there are much more important things happening in the world, and I try to focus on those. But yesterday's events do, I think, call for some uh, commentary. Now that the man has fully completed the process of his own self-destruction, there are some things that uh, I think we can learn, crucial takeaways. And I would like to spend a little bit of time talking about them. So as you've no doubt already heard, Kanye appeared on Alex Jones's show yesterday afternoon. The interview is the capstone on a week that began with the rapper storming out of Tim Pool's podcast after Tim offered gentle pushback to Kanye's ideas. He did not storm out on Alex Jones, however, though perhaps considering what he said, it would have been better for him if he had. Again and again throughout the interview, West, wearing a ski mask completely covering his face for the entire conversation, insisted on a point that he felt like it was, it was very important to make. Uh, he wanted to make it clear that he thinks Hitler and the Nazis get a bad rap. And here he is introducing that idea. That's right. You're not Hitler. You're not a Nazi. You don't deserve to be called that and demonized. Well, I I see I I see good things about Hitler. Also, the Jew. I love everyone, and Jewish people are not going to tell me you can love, um, you know, us, and you can love what we're doing to you with the contracts, and you can love what we're you know what we're pushing with the pornography. But this guy that invented highways, invented the very microphone that I use as a musician. You can't say out loud that this person ever did anything good, and I'm done with that. I'm done with the classifications. Every human being has something of value that they brought to the table, especially Hitler. Especially Hitler. And somehow that was not the craziest moment of the show. Later, Kanye launched into some sort of puppet act, making fun of Benjamin Netanyahu and using a bottle of Yoohoo and a net as puppets. And it took me a while to figure that one out because I'm not, I, you know, I usually I'm good with the, with the puns, but net and Yahoo. Okay. 
Um, it's hard to make heads or tails out of this, but here it is. I was tired of picking up the Yahoo and the netting. So for now, he's just netting. I know some people call him BB. No, some of you call him Yahoo, but we're going to call him netting. What you want, netting? Hey, yay, right after this, I'm going to say you're crazy. I'm going to take your family away from you. We're not done with you yet. You cannot cause free thought. We have to control the history books. We have to control the banks, and we have to go and kill people. Also, we're in the pedophilia. Ha, ha. So, and in a little while, hopefully you're going to take the mask off, because this, is this actually yay here? Right. Okay, then. And uh, he also returned to his Hitler fanboy routine, like I said, several times, but um, perhaps most notably with, uh, with this. I, I like Hitler. I, I don't like Hitler. And I know you're trying to be shocking with that. I'm not trying to be shocking. I like Hitler. I do not. I, the, the Holocaust is not what happened. Let's look at the facts of that. And Hitler has a lot of redeeming qualities. So he said those exact words, I like Hitler, multiple times. At other points in the show, he also said that we need to stop dissing the Nazis. He doesn't want to diss them. Uh, he said he doesn't like describing Nazis as evil. And then Kanye went home and, and hopped on Twitter, where he tweeted an image of a Star of David combined with a swastika. And he also tweeted multiple times in support of uh, Balenciaga, claiming that God loves the company, and then saying this, quote, I stand by Balenciaga and denounce all witch hunts, and I cancel cancel culture. Jesus is king. Ending trafficking doesn't start or end with a fashion campaign for Christ's sake. Well, no, Kanye, we, we should absolutely cancel companies that put out BDSM ads featuring children. They should be canceled, condemned, boycotted. I, I'm against witch hunts, too, unless there's an actual witch to hunt. But I suppose Kanye had already defended Hitler, so why not child pornographers while he's at it? Eventually, Elon Musk suspended Kanye from Twitter, what appears to be, as far as I could tell, a temporary 12-hour suspension, ostensibly because of the uh, swastika image, which Elon said is uh, in, an example of inciting violence, which is absurd, obviously. You either believe in free speech or you don't. Elon is running the platform as a free speech platform, or he isn't. You know, it's one or the other. He, he said in the past that people are free to post what they want as long as they aren't directly calling for violence against another individual or group. Well, Kanye did not directly call for violence. What he posted and what he said to Alex Jones can certainly be described as objectionable, insane, outrageous, immoral, along with many other similar adjectives. But free speech means you're free to say objectionable, insane, outrageous, immoral things. Of course, now there, there's, there's an argument you could make, and I've seen some people make this argument, that maybe Elon suspended Kanye for his own good, kind of like a, a mercy-killing approach on social media just to get him to cool down, stop talking, put down the shovel that he was using to bury himself. And since Elon owns the platform, he has every right to make that call if he wants to. But if that's what Twitter is now, if Twitter is a kingdom and Elon is the king and he gets to make the rules as he goes along, arbitrary as they may be, then, then he should say that. You know, again, he has every right to run it that way. It is his platform. He bought it fair and square. But he should say so for the sake of honesty and transparency. What he's actually said is that there will be free speech. And if that's what he's claiming, he should follow through on that, even in these hard case situations. Now, as for the rest of the story, first of all, it should go without saying. I would certainly hope that it does. But just to be clear about this, um, Hitler was a degenerate, mass-murdering lunatic. So if you're going to 
put your own credibility on the line and your reputation and your name and your career and everything to defend someone or to point out their redeeming qualities, quote unquote, it shouldn't be for the sake of one of history's greatest monsters. And not incidentally, Hitler was also a man who, by the way, would have thrown Kanye himself into the gas chamber without hesitation. Kanye is rallying to the defense of a man and of a group that would have considered him subhuman because of his race. So this is pure self-loathing, self-immolating madness. And on that point, second, it's hard not to laugh about some of this because it's so awkward and weird, and that's just the natural response when you see something awkward and weird. But in, in truth, you know, it's, it's actually not funny. This man is having a mental breakdown. He's losing his mind. He is sick. He is not well. He is in very bad shape. Nothing could be more clear. And yet he has no one in his life, apparently, who cares about him or loves him because there's no one talking any sense to him. He surrounded himself with vultures and parasites who have leached onto him and are feeding off of his notoriety and encouraging him to plunge even deeper into insanity for their own benefit. It is, it is a pitiful spectacle to behold. Kanye West was, was truly once an artistic genius and, and an important cultural voice once. But now he's eating himself alive on camera to the delight of the gawking crowd. Kanye has built a bonfire and thrown himself into it. If there was ever anyone in his life who was willing to pull him away from the flames, he's obviously cut them out at this point, leaving only the enablers and the coattail riders. And now he is hopelessly and helplessly spiraling into the abyss. And that's what we're watching. This is not an excuse for Kanye. It's simply an observation. It's very clear. The guy's just not well. And the fact is that fame can drive anyone into madness. I mean, once you reach a certain level of fame, you're, you're living something that can barely be described as a human existence. You become, especially these days, a product, a brand, an entity. You're no longer viewed as a person, but, but, uh, but you are viewed. You're not viewed as a person, but you are viewed by everyone all the time. You are, you are on display all the time. You have none of the anonymity that normal people take for granted. No privacy, no ability to ever be just sort of a face in the crowd. And when you're at Kanye's level, you're so famous that the people around you can become famous secondhand, right? And so you find yourself surrounded by self-interested fame whores who continually push you into the spotlight so that they can have a piece of it for themselves. And if you're already prone to eccentricity, as all artists are, this kind, of, uh, this kind of life can quite easily destroy you, which is why through history we have seen, now the, the self-destruction takes many forms. This is a rather unique form, but um, certainly you know, more common things like uh, artists uh, you know, succumbing to drug abuse, alcoholism, suicide, you know, those sorts of things. Again, this is not an excuse for Kanye. It's just an, it's an attempt at an explanation as to what we're seeing here. Third point, and perhaps most importantly, I would hope that Kanye West's psychotic break, which is what this is, would be enough to finally dissuade conservatives from falling madly in love with any celebrity who says one thing they agree with. You know, Kanye West was talking about this thing or that thing, kind of babbling and, and uh, over the years, and he's made one or two comments that conservatives liked, and um, suddenly he was a conservative hero. 
So on the right, we've we've been desperate for celebrity approval and celebrity endorsement for so long, and it's like it's pathetic, and it's given rise to this unfortunate habit of launching in, uh, latching onto any famous person who ever so mildly or tentatively affirms our position on any topic. I would hope that this would be enough to break that celebrity fawning spell. There's nothing there's nothing wrong with agreeing with a celebrity or even congratulating them when they take a stand on an issue. Like, you know, a month ago or a month and a half ago, which feels like a million years now, but um, when he uh, came out and, and, and spoke up for the unborn, there's nothing wrong at the time, as I did, saying that's, that's the correct view. I'm glad he said that. So there's, there's that. That's one thing. But what we shouldn't be doing is making them into a standard bearer, a hero, a champion of the cause. You know, we shouldn't be doing that automatically just because they're famous. Especially, by the way, you know, one, one thing is like somebody is famous and then they come along out of nowhere and they say one conserv- one quote conservative thing and and, and, and then they become, they, you know, they, they, they get put on this pedestal. And it's like, they, along with all the other reasons why that's a problem to respond that way, it's also, they haven't earned it. You know, they haven't been in the cause fighting for this. They haven't done anything for it. They just happen to say one thing. And in many cases, these are people who up to that point had been contributing to the cultural rot. And then they say one thing and, they, and it's just, it's an unearned position. Which means that you also can't trust the person. Like, they're, they're going to disappoint you. And if I was optimistic, I would say that maybe the right will be smarter about this kind of thing from now on. But I'm not optimistic. In fact, some on the right seem to have decided that they've boarded the Kanye ship and now have to go down with it, which is, which is really, which is also sad. That's, that's the, you know, that's the word of the day here. Sad. Because you don't need to. If you defended him in the past and you were on the Kanye thing, and, you know, and it's okay to say now, this guy's got problems, and then just move on with your life. You can do that. I've seen some defending him even still, looking for excuses, coming up with all these outlandish copes and rationalizations, claiming, for example, that Kanye's pro-Hitler stuff was just him advocating for radical Christian love. Love thy enemy, they say. But that's not what Kanye said. He made it clear explicitly he likes Hitler. He didn't even say love. He said, I like him. Like. Okay, The Bible does not call us to like everyone, much less mass-murdering lunatics. He said you think he has a lot of redeeming qualities. A lot. He said we shouldn't diss the Nazis. No, that's not loving thy enemy. That's just insane is what that is. It's also, we should note, a really big favor to the left. Okay? Who benefits from all this? Well, They benefit from it. In fact, if I was going to come up with some conspiracy theory to explain Kanye's pro-Hitler pivot, I would say that he's a leftist on a kamikaze mission to embarrass and discredit as many conservatives as possible. Now, I don't think that, okay, that's not the theory that I hold. I think he's simply mentally ill, as I've already covered. But that's the only conspiracy theory that even would begin to make sense if you're looking for one. Because the left is the only beneficiary here. That's why they're so gleeful about Kanye's plunge into madness. They're not upset about it. They don't think it's sad. They can't get enough of it. They love it. They they want him to be trending with all this crazy stuff. They love every minute of it. Why wouldn't they? 
Why wouldn't they love it? I mean, some of their ideological opponents hitched their wagon to Kanye, and then Kanye proceeded to drive right off a cliff with those people attached, which is a, which is a very fortunate turn of events for the left, but not for anyone else, and especially not for Kanye himself, who is a troubled man who needs help, not attention, which is why, now that I've said my piece, I will go back to what I was doing before and not give it to him. Now let's get to our five headlines. Twas a show before Christmas and through the studio, no other host was stirring, not even Shapiro. All the merch was set on the shelves with care in hopes that sweet daddy soon would be there. The sweet babies were nestled all snug in their beds while visions of walruses danced in their heads. Then over on Twitter there arose such a clatter I was trending on the timeline for some erroneous matter. But I ignored it like every other time Shrugging off the satanic, unhinged blue hair slime. Then my merch making elves created a collectible new batch, adding to my coveted program the Sweet Santa Baby Patch. They'll sell out from my store, so don't wait, don't stop. Just head on over to dailywire.com/slash shop. You know, I've uh, revealed to you many times that I struggle with uh, nausea, especially when, when I'm uh, in the back of a car taking an Uber or something like that. And the way they drive those cars is, uh, certainly doesn't help my case at all. But as you know, I've uh, solved that problem with Relief Band. Relief Band is the number one FDA-cleared anti-nausea wristband clinically proven to quickly and effectively prevent or relieve nausea and vomiting associated with motion sickness, anxiety, migraines, hangovers, morning sickness, and chemotherapy. Whether you need everyday nausea relief or an occasional cure, Relief Band's patented technology makes feeling sick a thing of the past. Like the name says, Relief Band is legitimately a band you wear on your wrist to give you relief from nausea. That's why they call it Relief Band. You can even change the intensity depending on how you happen to be feeling. Relief Band has an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau and over 100,000 satisfied customers. So if you want the band that actually works to relieve your nausea, check out Relief Band. I've worked out an exclusive offer just for my listeners. If you go to reliefband.com, use promo code Walsh, you'll get 20% off plus free shipping and a no questions asked 30-day money-back guarantee. So go to R-E-L-I-E-F-B-A-N-D.com. Use promo code Walsh for 20% off plus free shipping. Well, here's a story that's gotten a lot of attention, especially over on the pond, uh, over over the pond, not on the pond, over the pond. Uh, yeah, that's what I'm trying to say. Across the ocean. Um, reading from the Daily Wire's report, this is what it says. A Buckingham Palace official has resigned, resigned after she allegedly asked a black guest where she really came from. The late Queen Elizabeth's um, lady-in-waiting, Susan Hussey, made the remarks during an event that took place at Buckingham Palace on Tuesday, per the BBC. The publication noted that she asked the background question of charity founder Ngozi Fulani. Fulani said that she was totally stunned by Hussey's comments. The 83-year-old former royal official is Prince William's uh, godmother. A spokesperson for Prince William said, racism has no place in our society, and called the comments unacceptable, saying that it is right that the individual has stepped aside with immediate effect. 
Eyewitness Mandu Reed, who is leader of the Women's Equality Party, told BBC News that she found the comments by Hussey to be offensive, racist, and unwelcoming. She also recalled having a sense of incredulity upon hearing the question. Quote, we, we take this incident extremely seriously and have investigated immediately to establish the full details. That's the statement from the Buckingham Palace. Statement continued, in this instance, unacceptable and deeply regrettable comments have been made. We have reached out to Ngozi Fulani on this matter and are inviting her to discuss all elements of her experience in person if she wishes. In the meantime, the individual concerned would like to express her profound apologies for the hurt caused and has stepped aside from the, her honorary role with, the, with immediate effect. All members of the household are re being reminded of the diversity and inclusivity policies which they are required to uphold at all times. Okay, so this uh, official, Susan Hussey, 83 years old, just immediately thrown under the bus by everybody around her. Like everyone around her, throwing her under the bus. 83 years old. Including people that, you know, have known her uh, for, for decades. Right under the bus. Because, because she asked a black woman where she's from. And of course, this is being condemned across the board in the media, you know, by the media in the UK and here in the States. And this all began with a Twitter post. This is how this all got out here. A Twitter post where Ngazi Fulani gives her version of the exchange. And remember, this is her version. So she tweeted this uh, from her account, Sista Space. Mixed feelings about yesterday's visit to Buckingham Palace. Ten minutes after arriving, a member of staff, Lady S.H., approached me, moved my hair to see my name badge. The conversation below took place. The rest of the event is a blur. It's a blur because she was so traumatized, so traumatized by it. Um, and then, well, here, here's the example. Now, this, this again, this is her version of, this is this woman's version of this exchange. So Lady SH says, where are you from? Sister space. No, where do you come from? We're based in Hackney. No, what part of Africa are you from? I don't know. They didn't leave any records. Well, you must know where you're from. I spent time in France. Where are you from? Here, UK. No, but what nationality are you? I am born here. I am British. No, but where do you really come from? Where do, you, where do your people come from? My people, lady, what is this? She says, oh, I can see I'm going to have a challenge getting you to say where you're from. Where did you come? When did you first come here? Lady, I am a British national. My parents came here in the 50s. Oh, I knew we, we'd uh, get there in the end. You're Caribbean. No, lady, I am of African heritage, Caribbean descent, and British nationality. Okay. That's her, that's her, that is her transcripted, right, version of what happened. There's absolutely no reason to trust that it's 100% accurate. Even if it was an honest person. Like, if you're, if you're after the fact writing out a lengthy exchange like this, it's not going to be 100% accurate. Even if you're honest. Which, by all accounts, this woman is not. And so that's, that's her version making... Um, Susan Hussey look as bad as possible, and yet she still looks perfectly fine to me. Even in Fulani's version, she, Fulani, comes off as petty and ridiculous. You know what she's trying to ask you, okay? Where are you, wh 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 what's, uh, where are you originally from? What's your ancestry? Like, that's what she's trying to get to. You know that. And yet she's being difficult about it. Well, I don't know what you mean. What do you mean? I'm from here. I'm from, I, what, what do you mean? Where, where, most recently? Oh, I just came from McDonald's. What are you talking about? Um, and now, now uh, but she says she was, in fact, she's gone to the media, Fulani has, and said that this was traumatic. She is traumatized by it. 
The whole rest of the event is a blur. She barely even remembers it. She's been walking around in a daze because of this. Here she is on British media talking about. Let's watch a little bit of this clip. Tell me how you feel about the palace saying mm. you've, you know, they've they've asked if you wish to come and talk it through in person. Nobody from the palace has spoken to me. I don't know what what anyone's talking about. I, I have not been in communication, direct communication, unless they've spoken to somebody from Sister Space, like a member of staff. I personally have had no conversation with anybody from the palace. I don't know about an invitation. We have, I don't, well, let me read yeah. this out so people know. We okay. have, this is from the palace statement. We have reached out to Ngozi Falani on this matter and are inviting her to discuss all elements of her experience in person mm -hmm. if she wishes. Right. I mean... Um, like I said, I'm about positive solution. This is 16 days of activism, and I am not going to contradict what we're about at Sister Space. Okay. So, of course, That's I'd enough. be happy to have a... Shut up. Uh, oh, I'm, I'm, I, I want to find a solution. A solution to what? If someone asked you where you're from? What kind of solution? What's the, what's the solution? And why would anyone reach? Someone needs to reach out to me about this. For what? Apparently, you can't be spoken to without collapsing into, uh, into a puddle of tears. So maybe they shouldn't. Maybe it's just better if they don't reach out to you. We should mention, by the way, this woman, Ngozi, is apparently originally named Marlene. So the name was changed to Ngozi from Marlene. And she's an activist, apparently funded by BLM. No surprise there. And let's put this up again. Here's, can we go back to the picture of, of her, of the, this woman? No, the, the picture of her in the outfit. Oh, there it is. Okay, that's what she wore to the event. So she goes out of her way to appear as someone from another place, another culture. And then if you ask her about it, you're racist. So it's a trap. It's a, it is a setup. That, that's all this is. It's, it, it, it's, it's very clear that she went into this waiting for someone to ask her where she's from so that they, she could then accuse them of racism. That's all it ever is with these race hustlers. Everything's a trap. Everything's a setup. And it's all built around this ridiculous trope that somehow it's racist to ask a non-white person where they're from because we have to specify non-white person. Obviously, if you're a white person and someone asks you where you're from, you, you know, you're not allowed to be offended by that. If you're a white person and you go to a predominantly non-white country and people ask you where you're from it, it would, and you were offended by it, Nobody would take your offense seriously. Especially, imagine if you're a white person in a predominantly non-white country, and you're, you go to an official event wearing some kind of traditional garb, like, like an Amish beard with the, you know, the hat and the suspenders, or a, a Scottish kilt or something. Some sort of cultural garb um, that is you know, associated with, with, a, with a predominantly white culture. And imagine if you wore that, and then you got offended when anyone asked you a question about it. Let's see, you're, you're some part of Africa wearing a Scottish kilt, and someone comes up to you and says, well, what's, what's that all about? Where, where are you from? Well, how dare you ask me that? What, just because I'm wearing this, you would ask me? How dare you? It's none of your business. Oh, please. And of course, Hollywood has gotten in on the outrage action. The actor Riz Ahmed uh, posted some kind of slam poetry that he wrote about this subject. And I don't know if he wrote this because of, you know, for this woman or if he had written it before. But um, anyway, this is what he posted in support of this poor, traumatized woman. Ask you where you're from. Like, yeah, but where are you really from? The question seems simple, but the answer's kind of long. See, I could tell him Wembley, but I don't think that's what they want. 
but I don't want to tell him more because anything I say is wrong. Oh my gosh. No, not anything you say is wrong. Just say where you're from. That's it. Just answer the damn question. Jeez. You know, people ask where you're from because they're interested in you. And these race hustlers, they're always claiming that they're being erased and they're being marginalized. I guarantee you this Ngozi fraud, if, if, if rather than asking her, where, if nobody had asked her where she's from, if no one had brought it up, then she would be saying, I'm being erased. I'm being otherized. No one's interested in me. So it's a game. It's a setup. As I said, these people, they just set up booby traps everywhere they go. Everywhere they go, there's booby traps all over the place, and they're just waiting for you to fall into it because they're such disingenuous, scavenging little vultures. And the appropriate response to someone like Ngozi Fulani, who's like, I'm traumatized. My feelings are hurt. Good. I'm glad. Oh, you're, oh, really? It hurts you that bad? Fantastic. I don't care. Your feelings are meaningless. You manipulative little fraud. And, and by the way, if it's not disingenuous, I'm, I'm almost like uh, giving her the benefit of the doubt, just assuming that, this, that she's not actually this psychotically um, over-emotional and, and unstable. And I'm assuming that this is just a disingenuous game that she's playing to set traps for someone. But if it's not disingenuous, and this is a sincere reaction to being asked where you're from, well, then again, that's just psychotic, and, and, and you have to get over it. When someone talks to you and says something to you, their intentions are what matter. Okay, You take it in the spirit that it's intended. That's, that's what adults do. So if someone says something to you, and even if it's, uh, it's like a pet peeve or whatever, something, we all have pet peeves. We all have things that people might say or do that it's, it's unreasonable for us to be annoyed, and yet we are. It's what a pet peeve is. So at best, this is a pet peeve. Someone asks you where you're from, and it makes you really upset. It's a pet peeve. Okay, it's your pet. That's your thing. It's unreasonable. It's not a, it's not a reasonable response. There's nothing wrong with someone asking it, but you get annoyed by it, fine. That's your problem, though. That's not anyone else's problem. You have to deal with that. That's your issue. And as a, as a, as a, a mature adult in a social situation, your job is to understand the intent and to take it in the spirit that's in, in, intended. But what they've set up on the left here is this game where, well, intention doesn't matter. So when, when the speaker says something, their own reason for speaking doesn't matter. All that matters are the feelings of the, of the, the, the listener. But that's just, it's, you can't have human communication that way. Human communication only works if, you know, you're interested in the intent behind what's being said. Of course, it's the same game that the Alphabet Club plays. You know, the Alphabet people, uh, people that dress in these androgynous, confused ways, and, you know, the purple hair and the piercings and all that. And they, they, they try to look as confused and confusing as possible. And then if you, quote, misgender them or if you ask about their pronouns in a way they don't like, then they can get offended by it. Their whole aura, their whole personality, their whole, everything about them is set up to just be a manipulative trap for everyone around them. Because the only thing they're looking to get out of any interaction at all is their own victimization. Because victimhood is power. 
Only appropriate response is just to dismiss these people, utterly dismiss them with contempt. All right. Report in the Atlantic about the real Ron DeSantis. Um, A bunch of Never Trump guys like uh, Rick Wilson have contributed to this report, this hit piece. Reading some of it, it says, he was standoffish in general. The Virginia Republican Barbara Comstock, a former House colleague of DeSantis, told me, a strange no-eye-contact oddball, Rick Wilson, a Republican media consultant, wrote on Resolute Square, I'd rather have teeth pulled without anesthetic than be on a boat with Ron DeSantis, says Max Stipanovich, a Tallahassee lobbyist who set sail from the GOP over his revulsion for Trump and his knockoffs. To sum up, DeSantis is not a fun, convivial dude. He prefers to keep his earbuds in. His step-away-from-the-vehicle vibes are strong. I think he is going to run into some challenges. Carlos Curbella a former Republican congressman from uh, Florida who served with DeSantis in the House told me, it's that question that often comes up in politics. The question of, would you want to have a beer with him? This is a big time cliche, of course, but it does feel pertinent. Will he grow on voters like a catchy song or like mold? DeSantis has his robotic quality that he has to shed, Curbelo says. Everything else checks the box. He's smart and competent and committed to his ideology. He just has to humanize himself. So that's the whole uh, uh, Atlantic hit piece. It all revolves around this idea that Ron DeSantis isn't fun. He isn't a fun guy to be around, and uh, he isn't. Uh, you wouldn't want to have a beer with him or hang out with him on a boat. And to that I say, um, good. Okay, fantastic. I, I don't. I don't need fun politicians. Okay, I don't need. I don't need. I don't need that. In fact, I've had quite enough of that. Like, fun is not what we need. I don't need to feel, if you're, if you're a, a politician and I'm deciding whether or not I support you, I don't need to feel like I could be your friend. I don't need you to be my friend. And if you're running for president, I don't need you to be my friend. I don't need to feel like I'm the friend of the president because I'm not. And this whole thing, and, and they're right, it is a cliche. This, oh, would you sit down and have a beer with him? Who gives a damn if you'd sit down and have a beer with him? I would want to sit down and have a beer with any politician. These are like the most boring people on the planet. I mean, there, there are a few exceptions. But for the most part, I don't have a beer with any of these people. So what? That's not what I need. I just need you to be a leader. I need you to know how to get things done. That's all that matters. And look, as we, as we get into 2024, only th- here are the things that I care about. And this is it. First thing I care about is, are you a winner? Can you win? That's the first thing. Because we can't get past, nothing else matters if you can't win. All the rest of it is irrelevant. So the first thing, the first thing I'm thinking is, can you win? Are you a winner? And then if you are, the next thing that matters to me is, uh, can can you lead? Can you govern? Can you accomplish things? Do you have the discipline and the competence to accomplish things and the follow through? That's what I care about. And you could be in real life the nastiest son of a bitch while you're doing that. I don't care. Nobody cares. Doesn't matter. I, I, you know, maybe to bring us back a little bit to the opening monologue, I would love to get away from this, like cult of personality, all that, you know, latching on to people, falling in love with them. I don't need that. Ron DeSantis, I don't have any personal, I don't, I don't, I don't see him as a friend. I don't know him. I don't need to see him that way. Yeah, it's no secret that I support him right now, but he could lose my support in a heartbeat. It, I support him based on what he's done. That's all I care about. I, I support him based on what he has done. I look at what he's doing, and I say, I like these things. I'd like for more of that to happen. 
But if he stopped accomplishing things, if he started doing things I didn't support, I would drop him like a, a bad habit. I would drop him immediately. I wouldn't even have to think about it. That's the relationship we should have with politicians. It's like you work for us, okay? That's what it's supposed to be. This term public servant really doesn't, it feels very irrelevant when you look at, the, at how things actually work. But in an ideal scenario, that's actually what it's supposed to be. You serve us. And so can you get the, here's the job that we need done. Can you do it or not? If you can't do it, get the hell out of the way. Okay, you might be a nice guy. I don't care. Get out of the way. All right. Let's see. You've got a, another video. I want to play some of this. Another video of a um, trans person detailing their regrets uh, after transition. And we won't play the whole video. We'll play a little bit of this. Um, there are a couple things about it that, well, we'll just go ahead and play and then we'll talk about it. Go ahead. So I just got diagnosed with vaginal stenosis. <laughs> if you're confused, hi, I'm Zaya. I'm transgender. And like eight months ago, I got bottom surgery or gender confirmation surgery. So I had a PP and now I have a vagina. And let me just preface this by saying I do not regret getting surgery. I do not regret it. So I don't want any of y'all conservative to twist my words. I do not regret surgery. However, I knew recovery was gonna be hard, but nobody tells you that it could be this hard. But yeah, I was diagnosed with vaginal stenosis. And if you don't know what that is, it's basically when scar tissue gets built up inside of the vaginal canal to the point where it's like extremely tight and uncomfortable. And the thing is, for the first year after getting bottom surgery, you have to dilate your vagina religiously because it's a brand new canal that needs to be kept open religiously for the first year. And now that I have this stenosis, I, I physically cannot dilate. My vagina still has depth, but it's so tight to the point that it could start to close and form pockets that could lead to infection, which means that I have to get uh, another surgery. I basically just have to get the surgery all over again and get my vagina replaced. And like, it's just so annoying. And it just sucks because my vagina has made me so happy, happier than I've ever been. I finally feel comfortable in my body. It's so pretty on the outside. It's just the inside of it that's all f up. And now I have to get an emergency revision surgery. I'm so, a couple of reasons that uh, that I think that's important to to hear, as horrifying as it always is to hear these stories. I mean, when you when you hear like what these surgeries actually what they're actually doing to people, and this is why I say, I mean, this this person, I believe, is not a is not a minor. I think is a technically an adult. Does that make this okay, though? Does that make this okay? Is it okay for doctors to do this to someone? I don't care how old they are. It is just not okay for a doctor to do that. This Frank, this grotesque Frankenstein horror film type stuff they're doing and doing it to mentally ill people. Every person who goes to a doctor and wants to have their penis flipped inside out and turned into some approximation of a vaginal canal... Every person who wants that is mentally ill, 
by definition. And so to actually do it to them? Of course that shouldn't, it shouldn't be allowed. And yet, you know, the, I, I get pushed back on this from some conservatives who say, well, it's one thing to say that they shouldn't do it, to, but no, adults can do what they want. It's not about what this individual can do. It's about what the doctors did to him. Taking advantage of his mental illness, profiting off of it, to just mutilate him in this way. And the other thing, too, is that, is that um, when you hear about uh, uh, regret, you know, and whatever, it, it, there are no reliable numbers uh, because no one is really looking into it. And these, uh, the, the, these doctors certainly aren't interested in, in uh, cataloging this. But there, So there are no reliable numbers on, on exactly what percentage of people regret the surgery after the fact. But also keep in mind that for people who don't regret it, this is what not regretting it often sounds like. It sounds like he absolutely does regret it. Okay, he's, he's in tears about what's happened to him and talking about how terrible it is. And yet he says he doesn't regret it because he's trying to rationalize because he realizes what he's done to his body or what's been done to his body that can never be fully reversed. And so he feels like he just has to live with it. Also, he doesn't want to contribute to what he considers transphobia or whatever. And so many of the people say, I don't regret. This is, this is what that actually entails. This is, this is uh, right. And when they say, I'm happy with the surgery, that's, that's what happy with the surgery sounds like. And it sounds an awful lot like someone who, 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 who wishes they could do nothing more, that they could go back in time and stop themselves from, from going under the knife to begin with. All right. Is there, is there something a little bit less? I feel like this has been a, a relatively angry show, even, even by my standards. But that's, you know, that's, that's what it is. I can't, I can't invent what the stories are to talk about. They are what they are. Uh, this is a little bit less serious. Daily Wire has this. DoorDash announced on Wednesday that the food delivery company will become the latest technology firm to dismiss a substantial number of employees in an effort to limit expenses. Okay, well, it's, so it's mass layoffs. That's not exactly a happy story either. Uh, I, the only reason I mention this is it's, it's always seemed inevitable to me that DoorDash and Uber Eats would collapse. And in some ways, you know, um, it's, it's almost sad that the company was able to survive this long or ever exist in the first place. Not that I want to see DoorDash drivers lose their gig, but it's a sad statement about society because DoorDash can only exist by, by charging these insane delivery charges. So anyone that's ordered DoorDash or Uber Eats, you know how it goes. Like you, you order $40 of food and then you end up paying like $50 to $5 or $60 or something crazy like that. These exorbitant fees. And it's all for the sake of convenience. It's just so that, and I'm guilty of this. I'm definitely guilty of this myself. Um, and I hate myself every time I do it. Like, I think every single person who uses DoorDash or Uber Eats, right, we, we hate ourselves when we're doing it. You hit, that, you hit that final button to send the order through, and you just hate yourself because you're like, why am I doing this? I'm paying like a $25 fee, and I could just get in the car and drive myself and be back in 13 minutes. And instead, I'm wasting all this money. So it's this, uh, for the sake of convenience... So you could free yourself up to have more time to sit on your phone at your house doing nothing. You pay this ridiculous extreme premium. So there, so like, it, it's a, a kind of a test that these services are running 
to see to what extent can you actually profit off of the laziness of Americans? How lazy? They're almost challenging us. Like, how lazy do you people actually want to be? They keep upping the charges. Okay, you know what? We're going to charge you a 100% fee on everything you order. Everything you order will be doubled. But you can, st- you can stay sitting on your ass, and we'll, we'll bring the food to you. And what they found is that our, our, our laziness knows almost no bounds. We, we will pay almost anything just so that we can remain sitting on our butts. All right. Let's get to the comment section. Who's bringing shopping cards back to the rightful place? We're becoming saints here in the sweet baby gang. Black Rifle Coffee Company is helping you knock out your holiday shopping with a ton of awesome new products this year. Shop the best brewing gear, thermoses, mugs, and apparel designed for folks who love country and coffee. Black Rifle sources the most exotic roasts from around the globe. All coffee is roasted here in the U.S. by veteran-led teams of coffee experts. Stuff your Christmas stockings with the latest roasts from America's Coffee for 10% off with my code Walsh. Better yet, sign your secret Santa up for the Coffee Club subscription service. Imagine the joy of a pre-scheduled coffee delivery, all your favorite roasts when you need them most. It's the gift that keeps on giving. So Black Rifle Coffee Company is veteran founded and operated. They take pride in serving coffee and culture to people who love America. Every purchase you make with Black Rifle helps support veterans and first responder causes. Go to blackriflecoffee.com. Use promo code Walsh for 10% off coffee, coffee gear, apparel, and when you sign up for a new coffee club subscription, that's blackriflecoffee.com with promo code Walsh for 10% off Black Rifle Coffee, supporting veterans and Americans coffee. Okay, here's something positive. I, I do have some good news. Actually, some some great news uh, before we get to the comments. And <clears throat> I, I, I'll need to tell you about it. I'll try not to get emotional in the process. Uh, finally, the saga is really and truly coming to an end. Uh, the drama that has dragged on for months and months, and which you probably got tired of hearing about like 15 seconds after I first raised the issue. That is what is finally coming to an end. The walrus is coming home. Uh, he is coming home. My sweet walrus, my dear sweet walrus, is coming home where he belongs. My wife has finally caved to the pressure. She's tired of hearing about it also. And she just wants to be, she wants to be over and done with. And so, uh, and, and uh, she has consented, therefore, to the giant stuffed walrus being delivered to our home, to its home, I should say, to its rightful home. And today, I'm told it will happen. We cleared out a spot last night in the living room because that is where this is going to go because there's nowhere else to put it. It's going to go right in the living room so that everyone who visits our house can see it and we can have a a walrus-centered life, okay, from from henceforward. Um, I don't know. We'll all be together as a family. And uh, and, I take great comfort, and I try to explain this to my wife. I take great comfort also in knowing that the walrus is coming home uh, before the twins are born. And what that means is that the twins will, will never know what it's like to live in a walrusless house. Okay. They will have, they will, they will always have, uh, the walrus in their lives and in their hearts, and they will never suffer the kind of deprivations that I did. And I take, uh, I take great joy in that as well. It's a time of great joy for everyone, but my wife who is deeply, deeply annoyed. And that's okay. Because she'll come, she'll come to love, love the walrus. I believe that she will. Either that or she'll uh, just resent it and me every time she looks at it. Could go either way. But that's a risk I'm willing to take. All right. 
The Legs of Rolk says, with Matt continuing to dodge the agreement, I can now wholly relate to Jesse Pinkman when he said he can't keep getting away with it. So I'm, I'm sorry, I just want to clarify, watching two animes is dodging the agreement? I agreed to watch one, and I watched two, and I've dodged it. I've done double what I was required to do, and that counts as dodging? I, that doesn't compute. Another comment says, Walsh, you didn't dance, you didn't watch an anime. I admire that. S. Vin says, Matt, I thought you should know uh, that I'd be right in the middle of watching Ben's podcast and without hesitation switch over to watch yours as soon as it starts. Well, I'll, I'll take that. At least that's one one non-anime related comment, because as I'm going through this, every other comment has to do with anime. Scooter Boy says, just watch Death Note, Matt. It's an amazing anime, and I'd love to hear your opinions on the battle of morality that takes place. Matt, I must unfortunately inform you that unless these animations you watch are produced in Japan, they cannot be classified as anime, because anime is just Japanese animation. Therefore, you will have to ask SBG members in Japan to produce an anime for you. That's the technicality you're going to try to get me on. And yeah, every comment is about anime because these are the comments. You know, I said at the top of the show, I like to focus on uh, important subjects like anime and stuffed walruses. Well, here's one. Dirk Dykstra says, I prefer Zachariah Sitchin's account of ancient history over Graham Hancock's. It's even more fascinating. You know, I had a couple people. We were talking about Graham Hancock on the show a few days ago, and uh, I was saying how much I love alternative you know, sort of alternative history. Even if it's outlandish and I don't really agree with most of it, I just, I'm interested in it. I find it fascinating. And I had a few people mention that I've never heard of this guy. So I looked it up on Wikipedia. Um, and it says, and Wikipedia, of course, we know is, a, is, an, is an absolutely trustworthy source. It says, similar to earlier authors such as Emmanuel Velosky and Eric von Daniken, Sitchin advocated a hypothesis in which extraterrestrial events supposedly played a significant role in ancient human history. According to the Sitchin's interpretation of Mesopotamian iconography, iconography and symbolism outlined in his 1976 book, The Twelfth Planet, there is an undiscovered planet beyond Neptune that follows a long elliptical orbit, reaching the solar system roughly every 3,600 years. The planet is called Nibiru. According, I think I, ha- I, okay, I have heard this on Ancient Aliens before. It's starting to ring a bell. According to Sitchin, Nibiru collided catastrophically with Tiamat, which he considers to be another planet, one located between Mars and Jupiter. So now we got two planets, additional planets we didn't know about. This collision supposedly formed the planet Earth. Sitchin states that when struck by one of planet Nibiru's moons, Tiamat split in two, and then on a second pass, Nibiru itself struck the broken fragments, and one half of Tiamat became the asteroid belt. Where is he getting any of this? This is it's, it's, it's a complex. In fact, he's going back billions of years into the ancient history of the solar system. And, uh, and then there's this race of, of beings, and I guess they come to Earth 450,000 years ago, and they're mining it for gold. And then, us, anyway, I'm sold. I believe it. I'm, I'm, that's all I need to read. I think all the evidence is there. And uh, it's completely reshaped my understanding of human history. Last Friday, you know, we launched the brand new biblical series by Jordan B. Peterson. Uh, This series is called Exodus, and in it, Jordan Peterson sits down with other scholars to read the book of Exodus and discuss what it means and why it remains significant thousands of years after it was written. Scholars at the table include Dennis Prager, uh, Jonathan Pego, and many more. Episodes one, two, and three are available to stream right now, and there will be new episodes releasing weekly 
Trust me, you gotta check out the series. Here's the trailer. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Turns out that a book is more durable than, than stone. It's more durable than a castle. It's more durable than an empire. You don't get away with anything. And so you might think you can bend the fabric of reality and that you can treat people instrumentally and that you can bow to the tyrant and violate your conscience without cost. You will pay the piper. It's gonna call you out of that slavery into freedom, even if that pulls you into the desert. God is ethic-centered, not ethnic-centered. Well, do you want the Pharaoh on your side or do you want God on your side? That's kind of the question. There's a profound sense here that, that what, the, what is going on with the Israelites is the contrast to Pharaoh, right? Like under no terms will you go, and the Israelites have to say, we will go under any terms. And we're gonna see that there's something else going on here that is far more cosmic and deeper than what you can imagine. The highest ethical spirit to which we're beholden is presented precisely as that spirit that allies itself with the cause of freedom against tyranny. And yes, exactly. I want villains to get punished. But do you want the villains to learn before they have to pay the ultimate price? That's such a Christian question. <laughs> you have to be a member to watch. Head to dailywire.com slash subscribe to become a member and watch Exodus today. Now let's get to our daily cancellation. It is arguably one of the most important cases of our time, and yet you probably haven't even heard about it. Business Insider has the report about a court decision in France that, though it may have no legal bearing on the United States, still represents a historic win for the most persecuted group in the Western world. And by that, I am, of course, referring to introverts. Reading from Business Insider, it says, a French court has ruled that companies can't fire their workers for failing to be sufficiently fun which is, I guess, good news for Ron DeSantis as well. The ruling comes after a man referred to as Mr. T was fired from the Paris consultancy firm Cubic Partners in 2015 for refusing to participate in after-work drinks and team-building activities. According to the court documents, Mr. T joined the firm in February 2011 and was promoted in 2014, but was fired a year later in March 2015 for professional incompetence, specifically his refusal to adhere to the company's fun values. Cubic Partners also said Mr. T was difficult to work with and a poor listener. In a judgment issued on November 9th, the court found that because Mr. T's lack of participation in the company's fun values and critical behavior were reasons cited for his dismissal, he had been wrongfully fired by Cubic Partners. The court ruled that Mr. T was exercising his freedom of expression by refusing to participate in the company's social activities and that performing this fundamental freedom could not be a reason for his dismissal. Now, we're going to kind of look over the fact, look past the unfortunate fact that this man is fighting for his God-given right to not be fun, fighting for his right to not party, you might say. And yet the court has given him the pseudonym Mr. T, which is a very fun nickname. So even while vindicating his right to not be fun, they are still forcing funness on him in a way that I find, frankly, disrespectful. Be that as it may, this man does not want to go to the company parties. He does not want to do the, the after-hours team building. My God, can you imagine that? Team building while you're on the clock is horrific. When you're supposed to be home and they're telling you to come team build, doesn't want to do that. He doesn't want to socialize. He doesn't want to be fun. He wants to be boring, damn it. 
He wants to go home and get away from all these people, as is his natural human right, as enshrined by the Geneva Convention, or as it should have been enshrined at any rate. And I bring this up because it is a, it is a rare victory indeed for introverts in Western culture. This is a subject, introversion, that's uh, been on my mind over the last couple of days after fielding a particularly disturbing email from a listener during our members block segment, which you have to be a member to watch, by the way, if you're not. And the message came from a woman who was disappointed with her introverted husband because he refused to dance with her. Now, in truth, a reluctance to dance has very little to do with introversion, as I'll explain in a moment. Even, even so, I support a man's right to not dance as much as I support his right to not give in to the social pressure to have fun with his coworkers. And when it comes to dancing, as I explained to the woman, uh, some of us are, are born with what I call the dancing instinct, that is the innate desire to convulse our bodies in strange and arbitrary ways as a physical response to music. And some of us are born without that maladaptive and psychotic compulsion. Those without it never feel comfortable dancing, and there's no amount of social pressure or guilt tripping that will change that. But it's a subject of introversion that uh, interests me today. In fact, I talked about this once on the show back in the early days when I was ranting alone in my car, which as it happens, is in many ways the introvert's ideal format for hosting a podcast. And that show recorded, I think, like four years ago, went semi-viral on YouTube just a few months ago for whatever reason. And ever since then, I've been getting messages from my fellow introverts thanking me for speaking up in defense of our community, if you can even call it a community because we're all antisocial. And I figure now's a good time to revisit the subject and flesh out a few points, especially in light of this um, court case. And we should begin with the most basic point, which is usually lost in these conversations, which is to define what an introvert actually is. And here's the important point. An introvert is not a shy person, not necessarily anyway. A shy person is someone who is nervous or timid in social situations. Shy people have social anxiety. Introverts can be shy, but they need not be. In my case, I'm an introvert without question, but I can get up and speak in front of big crowds of people without any problem. That's not something a shy person can easily do. So I'm not shy, therefore, but I am introverted. How is that possible? Well, because put simply, an introvert is someone for whom socializing is maybe not terrifying, but physically and mentally draining. Okay, that's, that's what we, we, we are trying to explain. An introvert is, is most energized by spending time alone or in much smaller groups, like maybe with their family. An extrovert, on the other hand, is energized by busier and louder and more active social situations. An introvert finds these kinds of social interactions exhausting, while an extrovert finds them invigorating somehow. But here's the important point. Although the extrovert's proclivities are mysterious to me, I still recognize that it isn't wrong. Okay, neither personality type is wrong. There are benefits to both. Introverts tend to be more observant, more thoughtful, better prepared, more self-aware, more intuitive, while extroverts tend to be babbling morons. I'm, I'm just kidding, of course, sort of. I mean, extroverts tend to be, they, they're friendlier, they tend to be more enthusiastic, they're more, they're, they tend to be more bold, more assertive. There's some crossover here, of course. For example, I may, I may you know, not be an extrovert, but I, I don't feel like I'm lacking in assertiveness. Yet, as a general rule, these are how the personality types shake out. The problem is that our culture, for all its talk about tolerance and diversity, actually has very little tolerance for a diversity of personality types. We have very little tolerance for that. And in many contexts, particularly in the school system or in professional environments, et cetera, introverts are looked at with suspicion. Like there's, there's again, especially in the school system, there, there's one way to be. Like there's one personality type they want you to have. And if you don't have that, then it's suspicious. 
Uh, and they might even put you on drugs to fix it. Or at the very least, they're going to be constantly berated to open up, come out of your shell, talk more. The message is that this way of being, this disposition is somehow incorrect. And But it rarely goes the other way. I mean, extrover- extroverts are, are not encouraged to be more introverted. Talkative people are rarely asked to shut their mouths for five seconds so the rest of us can hear something other than their voices for a change. Assumptions are made, though, about the introvert. It isn't assumed that he's, um, you know, it's assumed that he isn't talking because he's snobbish, stuck up, standoffish, anxious, whatever. It's rarely considered that he might not be talking simply because there is nothing he feels like saying at the moment. That's it. It's just someone says, well, why aren't you talking? I, just, I don't feel like saying anything right now. That's it. That's all. It's, I'm not imposing on you. Some people are satisfied to think without verbalizing what they're thinking. There are people who actually enjoy that. They enjoy thinking without without having to immediately funnel all of those uh, thoughts out of their mouths and into the world. And these people are called introverts, and there's nothing wrong with them. I think this discomfort with introverts is is largely driven by our general discomfort with, with just quietness. Okay, we, we live in a very loud culture, and every moment of every day is filled with noise, with activity, with communication, with just lights and sounds and blaring screens and hustle and bustle and everything. There are people who walk around with, with headphones or earbuds in all day so they, so they never have to endure a single moment of silence. Now, introverts, though, don't have this fear of silence. On the contrary, we crave it. That's when we do our best work. That's when we can think and create and, and hatch our devious schemes to take over the world. We're not afraid of quiet, you know, but the culture is. And so then it is afraid of us by extension. And that is why the French Mr. T's court victory was so important. And it's why he is not canceled today, but the extroverted oppressors certainly are. And that'll do it for this portion of the show as we move over to the uh, aforementioned members block. Hope to see you there. If not, talk to you on Monday. Godspeed.